This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon and welcome to the Edinburgh Book Festival. My name is Rosemary Burnett and I'm delighted to be here with you this afternoon for what is going to be a fascinating hour. Um, we're going to discuss these two books, but can I first ask you to turn your mobile phones either off or to airplane mode? Because otherwise it interferes with the recording that they're doing of this event. Thank you. So, I'm delighted to be here with Connor Geerty and Douglas Murray. Uh, Connor is a human rights lawyer, the Professor of Human Rights and Director of the Institute of Public Affairs at the LSE, having previously worked in Cambridge University and uh, King's College London. His previous books include Civil Liberties, published in 2007, and Liberty and Security in 2013. Douglas Murray is associate editor of The Spectator and writes frequently for a variety of other publications, including The Sunday Times and The Wall Street Journal. Connor's book is called On Fantasy Island, Britain, Europe and Human Rights, and Douglas uh, has written Europe, the, Stra the Strange Death of Europe, uh, Immigration, Identity and Islam. And he asked me to tell you that it's uh, now currently in its 14th week in a row as bestseller. Please welcome <laughs> our two guests. Um, the format of the event will be that I will first of all start um, asking by asking some questions of Connor, which are designed to help him explain what his book's all about. And then I'll do the same with Douglas. And then I'm going to leave an extra long time for questions today, because I think there will be very many. <laughs> so Connor, could we, um, could we start by uh, just looking at how human rights came into being? What was, what was the provenance of the European Convention on Human Rights? Sure, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me how many weeks has your book been. <laughs> uh, you will all know the answer to that is <laughs> next week. <laughs> because the impact of my pathetic attempt to get you to buy the book would be so extraordinary that you will in yourselves rival his success. <laughs> I've completely forgotten why. Uh, my book is about this European Convention on Human Rights, which was agreed in Rome after the Second World War in 1950 and came into force in 1953 and produced this almost by accident quite remarkable opportunity, which was initially entirely optional, very few countries did it, I'm glad to say Ireland actually was on the first, of allowing individuals who felt their rights were being violated by the government of the country in which they lived to take cases to an international court. This wasn't unique, but it was pretty bloody unusual, to be honest with you, in the 1950s and 60s, and very little used. Uh, but over time, uh, procedures were rationalized, expedited mechanisms of bringing such cases were uh, brought into play. Countries like the United Kingdom in 1966, the French as late as 1981 adopted it. And before you know it, with the expansion of Europe post the end of the Cold War, we have this incredible system whereby people from the very furthest part of Russia, right over to Portugal, right down to Turkey, can take their countries to the European Court of Human Rights. And uh, on the whole, I think it's been a good thing. I've got an ambiguous relationship with all this human rights stuff in that I was initially, in an earlier phase of my life, very hostile to human rights, uh, human rights law. But I think in the current planet, 
and in the world we find ourselves in, it's been a force for good. And then uh, the man whose name must never be mentioned, Mr. Blair, uh, because apparently of errors in the past, we no longer take his views seriously. Uh, he had the idea of producing the Human Rights Act, which brought this thing into Britain in 1998, uh, brought fully into force in the year 2000. So we've had the European Convention on Human Rights within domestic law only since 2000. Or in Scotland, 1999. 1998. I was going to try and avoid being rude about Scotland. There were various, <laughs> various poor decisions in the early phase of implementation, which were corrected by the Privy Council. I'm only joking. I'm only joking. I'm only joking. You're quite right. Part of the devolution settlement allowed it to be established directly in Scotland and Northern Ireland for throughout the entire United Kingdom in the year 2000. And it's been quite controversial for reasons we make it on to. But it's idea was rather modest. Jack Straw, the then Home Secretary, his paper said, bringing rights home as Shadow Home Secretary, and rights brought home. The idea was a rather modest one. Lord Bingham, who was a very well-known judge at the time, approved it, which was to allow these people who had to go to Strasbourg, which is where the European Court of Human Rights is, allow them to take cases in Britain. So it's the same sort of cases. That was the sort of initial rather pragmatic uh, driver of the change. Yeah. Okay. So your book is divided into three main parts, um, fantasies, facts, and the future, or fantasies, facts, and future, to keep the... Well, we don't want to have a spoiler phonic. there. These people want to be excited by <laughs> <laughs> So fantasies, explain what you mean by fantasies, because I think maybe misconceptions might be a better word. Misconceptions might have been, but it's very long. And, and, it, have been and it doesn't <laughs> begin with off. On, on, on misconception island. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the audience is expecting a comedy turn. <laughs> uh, no, I should try and be serious. Uh, what struck me was the level of the debate about human rights was so just hopeless. And we now see, with the benefit of hindsight, it was the beginning of the move against reason and the move towards feelings being a sufficient argument for change that we see everywhere around us. And so the misconceptions, which I didn't call them, were about the nature of the argument against the Human Rights Act. And the first part of the book is saying, look, everybody's saying, that this human rights thing is X. I've looked at it. I know a bit about it. It simply isn't X. And so, for example, it destroys parliamentary sovereignty. It doesn't. The courts cannot strike down acts of parliament. Oh, that Strasbourg court takes over. No, it doesn't. Section 2 says specifically you take into account but are not driven by Strasbourg. Oh, it's just kind of for all those terrorists and all those druggies and so on. No, it's not. Here are all the cases where it's helped soldiers, helped people who've been victims of abuse who didn't expect to be, as it were in inverted commas, ordinary people. Oh, it diminishes this amazing, wonderful common law. Everybody was free. No, no, they weren't. No, they weren't. Let me tell you a bit about the common law. So the misconceptions drive the book. And then the facts are, here's what the thing really does. Here's how important it is. And then the future was more along the lines of, pick your future. Pick your world. And of course, this, uh, the changes since to do with the European Union and so on kind of amplify that final set of remarks. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. basic structure. Yeah. And so just to, to expand on one of those things, for example, um, 
UK compliance with Strasbourg decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, the, um, you know, one of the um, misconceptions is that, you know, Strasbourg takes over, but in fact, uh, 0.6, only 0.6 of the cases that the UK brings to Strasbourg have been overturned. Yeah, you can play with stats a bit here. I, I, I agree with you. I, well, I agree you, with it's you, in your book. Uh, I didn't make it up. <laughs> there's another misconception. <laughs> I could write to Strasbourg tomorrow saying, my hair isn't as beautiful as it should be. That's a breach of human rights. Now, do we include that in the statistics of applications? You know? A lot of people push cases that can't win from the, from the off. So we get the 0.6%. I do get it's authoritatively in the book. You're absolutely right. Uh, we get that by adding up all the stuff that goes in there. The really important substantive point, not that yours wasn't, is that the, the important cases, the British usually win. Mm -hmm. The cases that have a kind of broadly based root in the thing aren't about hair or teeth or whatever. I exaggerate, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And those that they lose, the British, they've been extremely good, as have most, if not all, European countries, at obeying the Strasbourg Court. To give you one example of this, the ver one very controversial case. I happen to believe it's rightly decided, but I can see people have different views. Do you remember the Gibraltar case, where the chaps were on their way, uh, man and woman, women, wasn't it? One no, woman, two, two men and one woman. On their way to blow up the troops in Gibraltar, and they were shot by the SAS. I'm not going into the details now. The important point is the... European Court of Human Rights found against Britain on a 10 to 9. Very dodgy. 19 judges, 10 to 9. Michael Howard, then Home Secretary, they, they, they accepted that decision. They, they accepted it. So even in a most extreme situation, they accepted it. And the only one which has really proved problematic uh, is, is the prisoners voting one. Yeah. And that tells us more about the way politics works, actually, than it does the substance. For various reasons, which I could, or needn't go into, but could, the prisoner's case with this awful man, Hurst, became a kind of symbol of a Europe that those who didn't like Europe generally here wanted to turn into more than it was. And so it's taken off as a big issue. But that one apart, the British both mainly win, and when they don't win, mainly comply. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, another thing you say in the book is that the Human Rights Act should be celebrated for the cases which have not happened than those which have. In other words... Like a viva a, for a PhD. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll give you your mark at the end. <laughs> uh, when I wrote that, when I wrote that, he said confidently, I had in mind the really important way in a properly functioning state, the, the law drives change within the administration. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why there is such a strong support for the human rights law across the administration now is that they've basically learned how to manage it and they've realized that actually it's a better thing to have than not and so structures are altered and frameworks are created and we don't need to throw them out. Now what are those frameworks? This is a key take-home point about human rights. It's often about procedure. It's often about fairness. It's about, take an example in one of the cases, not saying that a woman should be allowed to keep her child in prison, but giving her a chance to say why she should be able to. It's about getting a coroner to ask the right questions about why your child died, not just what happened at that moment, but about 
how come he or she died, whether it's in a hospital or whether it's in a prison or wherever it is. So in a way, they're not challenging. They're not challenging. Mm -hmm. And so those are the cases that don't happen. Mm -hmm. The frameworks are altered. The procedures are improved. People feel they are listened to. No case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's about the right to be heard, really. I, I, I think one of my views is the, the thing is mainly about the right to be heard, mm -hmm. which fits with human rights, which is uh, about getting people to be noticed. Human rights is about, hey, I'm a human, and in a way that's thinking through that implication. Yeah. I, I think the other interesting thing about uh, the ECHR is how the definitions have been stretched over time. So you now have um, FGM or forced marriages or or gay marriages or whatever, so that the rights have, have been expanded to include it more marginalized people. Yeah, sure, sure. This is one of the big, this is one of the big uh, debates, actually. Uh, it's about whether you decide that the convention means what it meant when it was agreed, 1950, or whether the words which are general, torture, inhuman, degrading treatment, slavery, privacy is the main one, can be given some new shape reflective of the world we're in, not the world we were in. Now, this all comes from America, where in order to try and stop abortion being in the Constitution, some of the Americans invented the notion of original intent. So they invented the idea that what matters is what the founding fathers said. And there is a strongish head of steam being built up here in Britain among skeptics of the convention that it should mean what it was intended to mean in 1950. Well, if it does, there'll be no cases. Because fortunately, we don't do the sorts of things that were in minds of people in 1950. And so we wouldn't have protection of gay rights, because that was post-1950. We wouldn't have a prohibition on capital punishment. That wasn't in the original convention. It took a protocol to include it. We wouldn't have new versions of slavery, inhuman and degrading treatment. That's not a convention that I like. I recognize, however, it raises issues about who decides what the contemporary meaning is, and that involves judges in a process of iteration with their cultures, the extent to which their judgments are accepted, the extent to which they grow through a kind of common law process of being further defined. That's kind of what you might call a kind of dialogue or a discourse. Mm -hmm. But I'm behind it. I'm in favor. It mm -hmm. has to grow or it dies. Yeah. Uh, I hesitate to say a bit like the Bible. A bit like the Bible. <laughs> say it. A bit like the Bible. <laughs> it only has two parts, doesn't it? Not like my book, which has three parts. <laughs> <laughs> like John Lennon, better than Jesus. <laughs> um, moving to a later bit of your book, you, you say that the current drift is away from human rights for the individual and towards entrenching the power of the state. Uh, you say it's, uh, human rights are not being wielded as a protection for the vulnerable, but as a cultural weapon mm. against the individual. Mm. thought this, that was interesting. This is where Douglas and I may have uh, perspective here. I think it shades into your work, actually, Douglas, a bit. Uh, although I'm not sure. We'll see. You can you, you try and free to comment. You, you try and dismantle what the language of human rights means say somebody like me, who's a professor of human rights, the law we understand. So there's a legal shape. Up to now, we've been talking about the legal shape. But also, human rights takes a cultural form. So human rights is what we in Europe do. You know. So when you're asked to explain what is 
Europe, what makes Europe special and different? You say respect for human rights, respect for democracy, respect for the rule of law, we'd say. Now, that's fine. I understand it as a cultural idea. My worry is that that cultural idea then validates departure from human rights law. Uh, so because we care so much about our European culture, we feel that we should be able to act against people who are challenging it. And so human rights ends up paradoxically authorizing human rights abuse. The outstanding example of this, I got into quite a little fight with him, was Michael Ignatieff after the Gulf War. Oh. You may remember he wrote a book called A Necessary Evil, very important book, widely admired in the White House, very much important in terms of underpinning conduct, which says basically we're fighting this terrible war against uh, Islam uh, uh, and we, we need to be able to do a little bit more than we normally would, so we should do this, we should do this, we should do this. I'm very worried about that version of human rights. Uh, and then thirdly, there's another shape human rights takes, which is what you might call subaltern, uh, kind of, and that's one I love, rebellion, where people say, hey, you have uh, indigenous peoples in Australia, or people with disabilities, or uh, people say, you know, we are totally ignored, and we have a right to be treated with dignity, and that's a broader, again, version of human rights. So to understand my subject, our subject, I think you need to unpick which layer of human rights you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting because Douglas in his book says, um, human rights have taken the place of Christian religion. Post-war culture of human rights is talked of by its devotees, of whom you are one, uh, as though it were a faith um, and appears appear to be an attempt to implement a secular version of the Christian conscience. Mm. It would be quite interesting mm. to hear you both talking about mm. that. Absolutely. Shall I go first and then see what yeah. you have to say? I, mean, just, yeah. uh, I think it's a very astute remark because I think human rights hasn't got enough religion in it. And, uh, for example, if you think about it in religious terms, it's, uh, Stephen Hopgood, who's a critic of much of the human rights thing at the moment, wrote a very astute book about amnesty. And it was about Amnesty is religion. And when you think about it, we have our Human Rights Day, 10th of December, you know, where we celebrate human rights. We have our missionaries. The missionaries are the, uh, the UN special rapporteurs, the committees and so on. We have our kind of pope, who's the UN High Commissioner on Human Rights. We have our martyrs, Romero, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, we have quite a range of the imagery of religion, but we don't have we don't have an underlying confidence in our belief structure, you know. So there's this really kind of powerful way in which we sort of try and boil the question, where do they come from? What are they? Are they a mere social construct? And of course, religion, Christian religion, is lucky to be able to say, that's sorted. We have that two-part book you mentioned earlier. <laughs> so that chimes very much with, with what you say in your book, doesn't it? That you know, we've kind of lost our faith in, in Europe, lost mm. our faith in, in uh, the underlying values mm. of Europe. Well, we're trying to create them, and we're creating them as we go along. And, I mean, to pick up from where Connell left off, um, I think that human rights have been suffering a form of hyperinflation in recent years. Uh, they're like a Zimbabwean currency. Um, the language of human rights has inflated so much that almost anything, as you say, can become a human right, and it, it makes a mockery of the ones we might agree on as being the fundamentals. And you can tell that the, that the 
thing is suffering inflation because, among other things, the language overinflates, becomes inviolable, becomes, they become uh, totemic. And of course, the problem, one of the problems I mention in the book in passing is that they're violated all the time. So if you keep telling people these rights are inviolable and so on, and yet everyone can see they're violated and unpunished, unpunishable, it makes people doubt the, enti the entire edifice. Mm. I think they're right to doubt the entire mm. edifice. But this, I think, should cause us immense unease. And, uh, and in any case, I mean, the subject of my book is that we're doing all of this at the same time as the rest of the world is nowhere near us. Now, you can say, well, that's terrific because it means that Europe is a great beacon of it. Or it may be that whilst we've, we've got this form of hyperinflation going on, we're losing exactly the bearings that we need to get us through. And I think that's among the problems we face. But I just want to come back to Connor on one sure, thing. Sure, absolutely. The, the end, your last chapter is called Save the Human Rights Act. Yeah. So just talk about that. Yeah, I will, I will, I yeah. will, absolutely. And then I'll just respond uh, to what Doug said, and yeah. then I'll do it. It's the hyperinflation thing, absolutely, in terms of assertions, sometimes crazy, crazy people assert things which are just simply desires presented as rights. Mm. I agree with you. It's also interesting how the language is always inflating. It's always a fundamental human right. It's yes. never a human right. Yeah. It's always an egregious breach, never a breach. Yeah. Understand that totally. Yeah. A mundane breach. D d you know, an ordinary <laughs> breach of human rights. Like that interruption of in my free speech, for example, it's an ordinary. <laughs> it's an ordinary. But ordinary. it wasn't mundane. <laughs> it's becoming egregious. <laughs> But the risk with that, the risk with that, to use a cliche, is to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Mm. We wouldn't have uh, non-discrimination against gays if, because at the time it was thought to be kind of weird, you know, pushing things far too far. The risk is, the risk is that we miss things. Amnesty moved from just, in inverted commas, torture and detention and so on, to violence against women. You know, very controversial. My goodness, why don't they stick with their brief, etc. Now it's sort of taken for granted that it was quite an important intervention for the unseen victims of aggression in the private home, etc. So I'm with you on the first part, but anxious, and I'd have to be because of my subaltern view of human rights, that uh, it's, it, it shouldn't be disciplined into yesterday, you know, on your question. The Human Rights Act's become a really important symbol, in my opinion, of cosmopolitanism and of reaching out. I'm an Irishman, I live in England, it is incredibly disconcerting to be unwanted in the country I've spent 30 years, and make no mistake about it, Irish people are European, and we're not really wanted. There is this strong political perspective at the moment, which is basically England, I don't know about Scotland, for the English. Now, you know, we can unravel that. I don't want to go too far down the Brexit thing. The Human Rights Act stands as an important statement of being a citizen of nowhere, not being a reason to be expelled. At a very small, mundane level, they can't get rid of me unless they repeal the Human Rights Act because I can show that I'm embedded in, this, in, in, in England through the respect for my family life and so on. So the Human Rights Act is much larger than the Human Rights Act at the moment because it's a statement for those of us who care about internationalism of intent. Humans are the same wherever they're from. And that has become, in this country, in England, sorry, I should keep correcting myself, in England, a dangerous sentiment, and that's all the more reason for keeping. Okay, thank you. <laughs> now, Douglas. 
the, uh, your book is called The Strange Death of Europe. Do you want to explain to us why you think Europe is dead or dying? Sure. Thank you. Um, <laughs> the point of the book, which from the first sentence lays out what I think is happening, is uh, my response, first of all, to what was happening in 2015 in Europe with the so-called migration crisis. When, um, you'll remember the footage every single day from that year, um, people coming into the Italian and Greek islands in particular, moving up through Europe. At the end, in the end of August, at the invitation of Angela Merkel, who said, basically, the world can come. I found this whole, having written a lot about immigration, a lot about identity questions for many years, I thought this was the most startling example of a trend I thought was already there, that was speeding up an extraordinary rate. And so, although I'd already been traveling a lot across the continent and also to the countries where people were fleeing from, um, in 2015 I decided to go to all the points of entry that migrants were arriving into, uh, to speak to them, to, to meet the people fresh off the boats, and uh, to follow the story all the way through the chancelleries of Europe. I, so I relate everything in the book from people who've literally just got off a boat in Lampedusa or Lesbos, uh, all the way through to conversations with supporters of Angela Merkel in the Bundestag in Berlin, uh, the Swedish politicians and so on, and trying to give the biggest possible explanation of what I think is the biggest story of our time. I think it's bigger than any of the other things that, that, that we discuss in, in our politics because it's going to have a massive uh, uh, effect on the future. I am, um, broadly speaking, to boil it down, I have the view that there's two things that have happened simultaneously, which is what makes this so very, very difficult. Um, the first thing is an unprecedented movement of people into Europe. There has always been movement. Uh, we'll know that. Uh, but this is movement on an unprecedented scale. In 2015, Germany added an extra 2% to its population in one year alone. Sweden added 2% in one year alone. This year, Angela Merkel has said again that there is no upper limit on the people she's willing to take into Germany. And of course, this has effects that you can see still on the news every day, although we've successfully bribed the Turkish Sultan, Erdogan. Uh, we, uh, and that has slowed down the uh, movement into Greece. The movement into, into Italy remains as high as ever. Uh, I think we've got 100,000 people just arrived so far uh, in Italy this year up to 10,000 in Spain. Uh, this is an almost endless movement, and as anyone who knows their African demographics will know, this is only going to in increase. And that this should happen at the same time as I see it, as Europe has um, lost faith in itself and has gone through what I describe in various chapters as both an obsession with guilt, um, which is not an unalloyed bad, of course, um, but an obsession with guilt and also what I describe as a form of tiredness, civilizational tiredness, or as I said in one chapter, the sense that for us the story has run out and that perhaps a new story must begin. Um, this is obviously a German-centric problem, but it's one that I think has spilled out across the continent. So I try to explain these things to say not just why, why something is happening to us, but why we allow something to happen to ourselves. It is very, very unusual in human history. Um, um, there are endless examples of this, but just a final point on that, as it were, is that we have had this presumption, in my view, that we are enormously flexible societies, and our, our continent is enormously able to absorb people. Uh, 
And one of my views is that um, we have, anyone who knows their European history knows we've had a lot of problems of our own, including a lot of problems with religious wars, internecine conflict, ethnic conflict, and so on. And it seems just at the very least very curious to me that we think that people who come in don't bring their own views, their own ideas, their own beliefs, and that we've sort of got to a stage where we're so willfully, blindly optimistic about this that we've, we've sort of arrived at the stage where, I don't know, you know, I might believe in Islam, you might believe in Christianity, she might believe in yoga, and it all comes out the same. And I think this isn't the case. I think there are huge differences in people's beliefs and ideas and the, the dreams they dream and the dreams they come with. Uh, and that we are, we are in the middle of, in my view, breaking a Burkean pact. That if, if the pact uh, that, that civilization should have is between the, the dead, the living, and those yet to be born, uh, we are being very, very willful with the world we're going to hand on. Um, and at any rate, to me, it fills me with huge trepidation, which I, I lay out at some remorseless length. Um, <laughs> my publisher, by the way, did say, please add a chapter on how it could get better. So I did. <laughs> I, I did do that, and then I explained Quite what I short. think will happen, um, <laughs> which is... Um, a short chapter. A short chapter. <laughs> um, you point to the failure of multiculturalism as a way of integrating... Uh, immigrant people. Mm -hmm. why, why do you believe that, uh, that multiculturalism has failed? Well, th this one's fascinating, by the way, because um, one of the central figures in this book, and I don't by any means paint her only negatively, I, I think I'm vaguely sympathetic to some things she did, was Angela Merkel. Angela Merkel gave an amazing speech in 2010, which uh, made headlines around the world. She said, multiculturalism has failed, utterly failed. And this was just huge in Germany. And then, of course, uh, Nicholas Sarkozy said the same thing, and then David Cameron said the same thing. Um, and now, then five years on, Angela Merkel opened the borders of Europe to the world. And this is a great sort of mystery to me, because if it wasn't working in 2010, why would it have been working by 2015? And she said something else in that speech that was a confirmation of what a lot of people knew. She said, the guest workers that, uh, that Germany invited in after the war, the Gastarbeiter workers, which is the same thing we did, same thing France, the Netherlands, everyone pretty much in Western Europe did. She said something confirmed something remarkable in that 2010 speech. She said, we thought they'd go home. We thought they wouldn't stay. Now, of course, in retrospect, <laughs> you move into Germany from Turkey, you're a young man, young worker, you're likely to find a wife, you're likely to have children, you're likely to need your children to go to school, of course you're going to stay. But nobody expected that. Every single successive stage of the last 70 years, nothing that has happened was expected by the political class who are in control of these policies. So they didn't even get that one right. And then you go all the way down the things that we expected. I, I charted in, in the book, I described the various things, the moment of when people realized that people were going to stay and that, for instance, among other things, you needed anti-discrimination legislation, anti-racism discrimination legislation, a whole set of things. Then, then we had the period of saying everyone should be able to celebrate who they are and we're just a sort of convener of this grand celebration. And then people noticed the only people unable to celebrate were the people who were convening the celebration. And, and then you got to this point where you said, oh, well, in fact, well, in fact we want integration. That was, that's a totally different thing to ask for. So we've kept on changing because we didn't know what we were doing. 
-hmm. And I, I give a, a, an example in the book, it, from, one from the Netherlands, one from France, one from Britain, that if you take the biggest doom-monger in each country, they vastly underestimated the problem. Vastly. <laughs> and this is a problem going forward. Mm. Do you, um, you point out throughout the book that Western European politicians have consistently acted against the popular consensus. Mm. Yes. Uh, wh why do you think they do that? Well, I can't see into all of their hearts, but I think that the... the um, I give endless polls throughout the book, both of um, uh, uh, opinion across Europe in, from the 50s onwards and right up to the present. Let me give you a very ominous example, if I may, of this. Uh, I give them on the last pages of the book. Um, my view is that it's just extremely hard for politicians uh, to uh, put the brakes on. Uh, and they, they also, by the way, there's a risk calculus in politics. This isn't often pointed out, but if, if, if you had a choice between two policies, and one of the policies would potentially get your reputation destroyed, make you lose your job, possibly in some countries get assassinated. And if you took the opposite policy, you might have a negative line in your obituary in the paper. Which one are you going to take? Mm. Uh, the, the risk calculus for this is pretty straightforward. If you just keep doing what you're doing, you're going to get a bit of, I might mention you nastily in a book, <coughs> somebody else might write an article criticizing you, but you, there really isn't much of a risk in it. And for politicians and their careers, this is a huge thing. But just, there's this point I made, make at the very end of the book, the vast gap that is, also, is growing and I think is one of the biggest warning signs we have and we're ignoring it. The gap between the political class and what they're willing to say in these issues and what the public think. Here's a striking one. All of you remember in uh, February this year, the new American president uh, issued a, 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 an eight-week travel ban to the US of people from seven Muslim-majority countries, all of which are very unstable countries. I make no comment on the wisdom or otherwise of the policy, but this, this you'll remember, caused uproar. You couldn't, as it were, in what we used to call polite society, you couldn't find anyone who would defend this. This temporary travel suspension from seven very unstable countries. Um, two weeks after that, uh, a think tank in London, Chatham House, released a poll. They had polled people in 10 European countries and asked them if they agreed or disagreed with the statement that they wanted zero more Muslim, specifically Muslim, immigration into their country. And in eight out of the 10 European countries, the majority of the public said they wanted not one more Muslim. And that included the majority in France and included the majority in Germany. And one of only two countries where that wasn't a majority opinion was this one, the United Kingdom in which only, I put it in quotation marks, 47% of the public agreed with that. Now, what are we doing that means that the political class keep going? This, uh, my, my analysis is that whilst the public, as it were, to use a gross left-right divide, are going to the right on issues of migration and identity, almost as a response, the politicians are stampeding towards the left. And that in this gap, as we're also seeing in America, huge numbers of problems uh, reside. One of the things that you say in your book, which is, is quite, I think, controversial, you, um, you, 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 you quote an unnamed Islamic scholar who allegedly said, by means of your democracy, we shall invade you. By means of our religion, we shall dominate you. Oh, no, I don't think it's unnamed. That was the Algerian president. Well. Yeah, in the, in the uh, 90s, at the Dien, at the... Uh, at the UN. Um, quite a lot of people have said that, quite a lot of uh, uh, scholars have said that. 
Um, this is this is one of the um, one of the. I mean, it's it may be controversial, but it's necessary to open it up. Uh, this is part of what I describe as an, a European moroseness at the moment. Is a great fear about this, and it comes from. This, France is the main centre of this fear, by the way, of what is called le grand replacement, the, uh, the replacement of the population. Um, and the thing about it is, is that there are significant parts of, for instance, France in particular, where you can see that they're not under nothing when they have this fear. I have a, a section of the book uh, from um, Saint-Denis, um, the suburbs of, of, of Paris, where the, it's the home of the tombs of the French kings, including Charles Martel, who won the Battle of Tours. I say, if, if Charles Martel were to rise from his tomb and, and leave the Basilica of Saint-Denis, he might well think that he'd lost the Battle of Tours. Um, and uh, Parisians all know it's there. They don't like to go. Um, and this, but this makes people dream dark dreams. And one of, the, I say, one of the overriding things about this is, I say, repeated in this book, that we have to think very, very carefully about what we're doing with the future of our continent on this. And one of the things is that we've made it, some people have made this whole question incredibly easy for themselves. I mean, we all know that the nature of debate in all politics these days is, you know, I am Churchill, you are Hitler, uh, you are fascist, I am anti-fascist, hear me roar. And most really difficult questions, of which the immigration question is one, maybe the hardest, need to be thought of in a different way. And I say that they sh we should think of this as competing virtues. We, we have, I, believe me, I have, I have the I've had the feeling many times, hearing the stories of people who've fled to our continent, dreaming dreams of what we could do, how we could integrate, where pe you could put people, how you could disperse people. And I know, I know what that is. I know that feeling of generosity we want. But we are caught between a feeling of generosity or kindness or charity and also what I think is a competing thing in this, which is justice for the people who are already here. Now, Aristotle, among others, said that this is a competition between two virtues. This isn't right or wrong. It's not, I want millions more people, you don't. It's, how do we find our way through that problem? And one of the ways I say, as a final point as it were on this, is as it, a realization I had towards the very end of this book, as I was in the Bundestag, and I was speaking to this, this supporter of Angela Merkel, and I said to him, he said, I said, I said, don't you realize what you're doing is suicidal? He said, look, Douglas, if we were 80 of us in this, 81 of us in this room, and there was a knock on the door and somebody said, I'm going to be killed if I'm staying in the corridor, what would we do? I said, we'd invite them in. Exactly. And then I said to him, what about the next time there's a knock on the door? And the one after that. And what do we do when the knock on the door isn't from somebody saying, I'm going to be killed if I'm staying in the corridor, but my life in the corridor here sucks. And I'd really like what you have, which is, by the way, the majority of the people arriving. What do you do about that? And so on and so on. And this led to me to one of, one of the questions which I just wish I could get politicians of all part, any political direction to think about, which is, is there a point where we take on so many people that we actually capsize the only vessel we have? And I think we are in the process of that. And we can avoid it if we just think about this. Well, I hope that's given you a, an idea. Could I do you want to? Can yeah. I ask questions? Sure. Questions after but I, I need to. Yeah, get you the do. Audience but just very quickly. <laughs> just very quickly. Uh, are the Austrians wrong because they rejected this vision, which has put mm -hmm. them in a presidential yeah. election? Are the Dutch wrong because they had a guy who said exactly this and was expected mm. to do very well? 
Are the French wrong mm. because they had Marine Le Pen who took mm. the identical view? Uh, Angela Merkel, who was behind in the polls, mm. has explained her position mm -hmm. and she looks to be romping home. Douglas, mm -hmm. are they all wrong in that they don't see the destruction of Europe that you are spotting? No, I look, th by the way, the, 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 uh, Macron is exceptionally lucky to have been running against a member of the Le Pen family. I mean, if the choice is between something which we even fear reeks of the old fascism and the status quo, I think Europeans continue for a while longer to vote for the status quo. Um, uh, by the way, it, take the, the Dutch election. The Dutch election is an amazing example of this. I mean, Geert Wilders is a, is a monomaniac. He has one thing he goes on about. He has very little to say about, about education or about the health service or anything else. It's Islam and immigration only. And I think a lot of Dutch people, uh, I go there quite a lot, are very unconvinced that there's anything else that this man has or that he could run the country. But look at what Mark Rutte, who they did vote for, was saying by the time of the election. I mean, Mark Rutte said things I regard as being somewhat hard-edged. Uh, now the Prime Minister again, of course. He said at one point, he said, people should become normal or get out. Okay. So... I don't buy the idea mm. that it's, as it were, just, mm. you know, foot on the pedal as normal yeah. or yeah. the fascists. Um, I think that the public are discerning enough to be able to avoid that. Yeah. But they may not remain discerning. Mm. That's, that's okay. one of the things I say towards the end. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. It's over to you now. Um, if you could just wait for the microphone to come to you, the lights will go up, I think. Uh, there's a question here. There's somebody with a microphone. Here it is. Okay, one of the most frequently adduced arguments in favour of immigration from uh, North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa is an economic one, that basically immigrants come here and in some sense at an aggregate level increase economic activity. And this is usually added to with suggestions that we have an ageing population and therefore we need younger, more virile people to come in. At the same time, very significant narratives have developed around the view that mechanization and the, impact, the, the late impact of the information technology revolution is going to cause a huge wave of redundancies. And in fact, it is already in many skilled jobs, which were uh, what you would describe as grey to white collar jobs. Uh, and we've all heard about Uber taxis being driven by robots. At the same time, we're being told we have to live longer and we, our pensions question? will come much later. Your question? So my question is, why do we need so much immigration? And thank you for allowing me to complete my point there. <laughs> it shows how liberal you are. Uh, my question is, why do we need so much, so much immigration? Because I don't believe that we do need immigration from illiterate people who've received perhaps primary education. I don't accept that argument. Right. Do you want to answer that, Douglas? Um, well, of course, not everyone who arrives is illiterate. Um, uh, the, by any means, uh, Syrian refugees, for instance, are rather well-educated. But Syrian refugees have been a minority of people exiting and entering into Europe for quite a long time now. Uh, even the vice, vice president of the European Commission, 2016, said that the people who came in 2015, 60% at least had no right to be in Europe, which is a, a big thing to discover after the fact. My own view is that uh, I lay out in the third chapter of this book that there's um, th these are all explanations for something that would have happened anyway. 
Um, there's a set of things that you always hear on the immigration argument, wherever you stand on it. Um, uh, after it's happened, people say, we need it for economic reasons. We have an aging population. It wouldn't matter even if they don't bring an economic benefit, which is debatable. Uh, and it wouldn't matter even if we didn't have an aging population, because what we do is we gain a lot culturally. And it's, so there's a set of um, follow-on points. The aging population, by the way, is a fascinating one, because um, uh, if it is the case, I've had this argument many times, I relay some of it in the book, in Germany in particular, if it is the case that, first of all, there's nothing that wrong with a static population, and nothing that wrong with a slowly uh, uh, diminishing size of population. There was a time when left-wing parties, including green parties in Europe, argued for a reduction of the European population. They don't argue that now. Um, but, uh, but, but the argument was always that, that, that if, if, if you have this argument that we need to bring people in to keep us in a style to which we've become accustomed, then, of course, among other things, you have to confront what happens when... I mean, the amazing fact that immigrants get old as well. And that means you have to bring in more and more people because more and more people need to support the, the people who are living in the lifestyle we've become accustomed to. But I have one primary argument on that, particularly with Germans, which is if it is the case, and by the way, I mean, in the northern mill towns of England, nobody now thinks that was a good idea to import large workforces that then ran out of the jobs that they've been brought in to do. But if it is the case that the German population is aging, and there's all sorts of things to be said about this, if it is the case, then if you needed jobs to be done, why would you basically open the borders mainly to sub-Saharan and North African immigration to do those jobs, particularly in a country like Sweden? Sweden doesn't have a requirement for low-skilled or non-skilled labor, and it particularly doesn't have a requirement for non-skilled labor that doesn't speak the language. It's a catastrophe they're setting up. But the, but the one point I would say is, is, if that is your idea of what to do with your country, why would you not go to, for instance, for, to Spain and Italy and Greece, where there is up to 50% youth unemployment? Why, why would you not do that? And, and the answer is, again, this is just an explanation for something that would have happened anyway. I think uh, the fact that you ended up saying that they were all illiterate says more about you than the point you began with. Right, next question. Somebody in the middle here. I'm not going to discuss it with you, sir. I'm not going to discuss it with you, sir. I've made my point clear. Right, next question. <laughs> Thanks very much. I, I did read um, Douglas Murray's book, but after two or three pages, I just thought it was too racist and xenophobic for me. But it didn't go to waste because I sent it to Donald Trump and he thought it was great, actually. <laughs> now, I want to talk about, it's not an easy problem, uh, immigration, but I want to talk about the responsibility that the Tories and Tony Blair at the time, by invading the Middle East, and ca causing an absolutely massive problem, costing 20, according to the Daily Krelkov, 30 billion, i.e. end of austerity. But what about our responsibility, these terrible poor, poor people so. through there? What about that part? Okay, thanks for your question. Thanks thanks very much. I'm, I'm sorry, Connor? Uh, I, I think that Douglas's book uh, is really, I think you've, you've caricatured it. I've read it in preparation for today. I think in particular some of the stuff at the end about how to manage the uh, crisis, because obviously a crisis is really, really valuable. And I think it's really important to have this debate out in the open and not hide behind labels that are offensive. I would just add also, I'm sorry you didn't read on. Um, <laughs> but as long as you bought it. <laughs> also, also... Also, by the way, you'd have, uh, you'd have found the answer to the question you asked if you'd have read on. 
Um, because among other, the, uh, among other aspects of it that's so interesting is precisely the misapprehension you're under, which is the people that are coming are all from, for instance, Iraq. And that isn't the case. Uh, I've certainly spoken to more migrants than you have, sir. And I can assure you they become come from a quite remarkable range of places. Bangladesh, for instance, a lot of people in Greece last year from Bangladesh. Uh, what has this country done to Bangladesh recently? Uh, what have we done to Eritrea recently, where a lot of the people entering Italy are from? Or what have we done to anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa, or to Morocco, or to Algeria, and so on and so forth? Okay, do we have more qu another question, this gentleman over here? I don't want to be misinterpreted by this. I want to ask about the phrase that the purest politicians use quite a lot. The public is always right. What do you think of that? <laughs> uh, I, I think there's an important point here about the use of referenda. And it was interesting, Dr. Says data, which I don't, uh, I don't disagree with. How is it reconcilable with these various votes that I've described? Answer, Douglas gave the answer actually about the nature of discourse and the rational engagement which goes into political processes. The public are always right when they elect their representatives to reflect a common opinion in their country, not as delegates, not as automatons, but as representatives. I'm old fashioned uh, in, in, in the Burkean sense there. That's what the public are right about. They're not right to have some passing desire turned into law by some automated uh, medium called a referendum. Human, human rights, my thing, the Human Rights Act, is a brilliant decision, in my opinion, by legislators to tie their hands in future to stop them succumbing to the temptation to brutalize the minorities, the exposed, and the oppressed. They can always override it. That was one of my earlier points. But they are put on notice that they are doing so. That, in my opinion, is a civilized society. Mm. Have to get another question. Okay, um, there's a, a lady somewhere. Oh. No, you will put your hands down. There's a lady here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'll come to you later. I was just wondering how we could, how can, you can, you can hold avoid the mic like that, like an ice cream. Pretend you're eating an ice cream. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you? think that Europe can avoid suicide, this cultural suicide you're talking about, what are we to do about it? Well, it comes back to the, those two aspects of it, doesn't it? I mean, one is, as it were, the practical aspect, which I try to discuss at the end of my book, which is, uh, I mean, how literally, to my mind, Europe can't be the home of everyone in the world who wants to move in and call it home. So we have to work out who it can be home for. Uh, there's a set of practical things you can do uh, to make sure, for instance, that you're not working out who people are once they're in Europe, which I think is a big disaster, as the, the example I gave of Franz Timmermans' quote from 2016. Um, but the harder bit of this, by the way, I mean, an interesting, if I may say so, aspect of what I've found since, I, since this book came out has been that there's been a lot of interest from my critics that were on the immigration bit. But the bit I wanted them to pick up on, which they've almost unanimously avoided is what I regard as being a much tougher question in one way, which is the who are we part mm. of the question. Mm. Uh, I, 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 I can't come up with reasons for why they won't engage me in this debate, but this seems absolutely central to me because um, if, if, whether you sort out the immigration issue or not or diminish the numbers or slow them down or whatever, you still have this question of what I describe as the meaninglessness issue. Mm. And I think this goes to the heart of a whole set of issues 
that a lot of young people, in, the, in particular in Europe at the moment, can feel. That, as it were, the, in the absence of... I mean, I'm not, this isn't an argument for the re-evangelization of Europe, I've stressed that. But there is a godlike gap hmm. and a church authority-like gap, which is, isn't being plugged from anywhere else. And whether you want it to be plugged from somewhere else or how it is, you get this, to this situation, I think we are... I have a lot of, go to a lot of schools and speak, speak to students and hear their questions and things. And one of the things that fascinates me is a number of them that basically say, you know, we get taught a bit about personal hygiene and a bit about sex education, but the sort of what we're doing here is just left... Now, it's left because no one knows what the hell we are doing. <laughs> But this, this requires a great amount of thought. And I, I, one of the, I mean, one of the, very quickly, one of the things I do say is that we have to have an attitude towards our own past that is more measured. The, the, the swing into guilt is understandable because of history. But you, you can't survive as a civilization if you only war on your history. Just yeah. quickly, very interesting, that, because I agree with you. That's one of the most central parts mm. of the book. Paul Bendict was right about the need to evangelize Europe, but wrong, in my opinion, about how to do it. Mm. And he chose some of the wrong reforming targets. On your point about this who are we, a lot of your book read to me, Douglas, like a debate we used to do in university on, it was called the Hart Devlin debate, about gay rights. And there was quite a strong 1960 view, absolutely promoted by Lord Devlin, oh, yeah. the enforcement of morals. Yeah. Society will never be the same if we let gay people, as it were, out. And it was, it was quite, yeah. you know, it would be, be interesting to engage with you on it. Mm. It was, society is homogenous. Here we are, a decent Christian society. We are challenged. Mm. Society requires this. And then the famous Herbert Hart writes and says, get over it, you know, mill. Mm. It's not going to be so bad. The discourse was very much, we mm. are facing oblivion. Right. And now, a bit further on, as it were, that very achievement mm is presented by us, not you, I'm not mm -hmm. taking a view on your view, as part of the civilization we need to defend. Yes. My view, in direct answer to you, is society is pretty robust. Now maybe this is my temperament, I'm, I'm less anxious maybe than I ought to be, but we can survive. I'm a governor at a school in North London, comprehensive boys school, huge numbers of, of asylum seekers and immigrants. We have the most wonderful awards evening, they all turn up in their suits. The last three winners of the main award, Citizenship Award, Citizenship Award, have been asylum seekers. They love the place for what it is, not for what they want to make it. Mm. Can I, can uh, I no, I'm sorry, oh, I've got to so, stop. But do, do later, because it's, it, no, go <laughs> just, on, Rosemary. Yeah. Just what? a very, very quick one. Yeah, no. yeah. I've got to finish, okay. I'm tired. I, one of the broad <laughs> things is, I think that if, if you invite in the world, you have to change the definition of who you are because you have to have a definition of who you are that can encompass the world. So m my explanation for this is w what we are doing is creating a, 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 an us that is very, very broad. Tolerance, fair play, and kindness, etc., etc. It's, it's fine, it's all good, I'm not against it. Very, very broad, but shallow. Shallow. And this is, this is, a, this is a problem we have to think about. It's, it's on one level, it's a great skill to be able to encompass the world and, home, and house the world. But on the other hand, you may be going through challenges in the future in your society that you need to have deeper wells to call upon. And if you've closed all of those wells off or told people those wells are utterly unable to be accessed again, you store up trouble for a generation hence. 
Um, Connor may be right. He may be more optimistic by uh, character than I am. I can't, I can't be out pessimistic. <laughs> but if the facts are pessimistic, then I'm pessimistic. But I'd love to be an optimist by nature, even with all the damage that optimists well, have I, done. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really sorry to those oh, of you who've had your hands sorry. up for a long time. Um, but we have run out of time. However, there is an opportunity for you to ask your questions when you're queuing up to buy these two wonderful books, ah. which we've all been discussing. Uh, Connor Geerty on Fantasy Island and Douglas Murray on The Strange Death of Europe. Please join with me in thanking them for a fascinating hour. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, just to, the last thing is that they will be signing them in what I like to call the adult book tent, but for some reason there's always a few titters. I, I don't understand it, but along there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest. The next book festival is on from the 11th to the 27th of August 2018.